please remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, to chapter 16. Let me begin reading in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Amen. That's into reading of God's word. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we could gather this morning. Uh, Father, we are here to, to hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. And God, that you would uh, give us strength uh, to follow you. That you would strengthen our faith, O oh Lord, and make it strong. That we could trust in you. Uh, we thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I grew up in a uh, small farm community, and uh, I was either related to everyone in that community or we knew each other. It was just sort of a close-knit community. But I remember when it was time to go to college, I actually packed up and went hundreds of miles away from home to a, another part of the country. And, and one of the things that struck me, probably the thing that struck me the most when I went to college was how different people thought about things than I did. And it's not that I expected everyone to think like Rick Franks by any stretch of the imagination, but I was just shocked at the diversity of thoughts and, and ideas, you know. And uh, I know young people, that probably seems strange to you. This was before the days of the internet. Now we're sort of in the information age. Ideas sort of flow freely. You get to see sort of what everybody's thinking, and they're not afraid to, to share it. But in that day and time, that was sort of an unusual thing. But I can't help but wonder if the church is a little like I was when I went to college. Uh, if you grew up in the church, uh, the gospel is most likely very near to you. You, you respect the church. You, you probably view clergy as uh, definitely not perfect men, but men of integrity. Uh, the church is, a, is an asset to a community. As a matter of fact, if you grew up maybe in a community like I did, the church was sort of the center of that community and was there when there were deaths and tragedies that, that hit that community. 
But brothers and sisters, uh, now people are beginning to view the church and religion much differently. And, and oftentimes see it as negative, or, or maybe at least, at best, outdated. Sort of see Christians as, as narrow-minded. And, and even so-called evangelical Christians will even doubt foundational biblical truths like the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And they question, why does there have to be a blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins? And so I think the church in America is sort of experiencing what I did in college. And they realize that people think differently about the church than maybe what they did at one time. And as we look at our text today, we're sort of going through a mini-series today on, on where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus talks about this issue. He addresses this. Jesus is not only committed to building the church, but also, as we see in our text today, to defending it as well. Now, keep in mind, and I'm just asking you, please, resist this temptation. I think it is so easy when we think of the church, and I know we all sort of use this language. We think of the church as a building. I'm going to run up to the church, or I went to church on Sunday. Or, you know, and it's so easy to think of the church as a building, or at least as this sort of this nebulous institution. It's something that's outside of me. But the reality is, is the church is the people. It is the people of God. And so as we, as we talk about Christ building his church and defending his church, let us remember that he's talking about defending and building his people together. As, as the church. And, and we read here that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against Jesus' building program. Now, that verb prevail uh, is also used in Luke's gospel, in, in Luke chapter 23, uh, during Jesus' trial. And, and Pilate has examined Jesus. He finds no guilt in him for the charges that are brought up against him. And so Pilate decides that he's going to uh, uh, punish Jesus, and then he's going to release him. Well, of course, to the people, this was unheard of. They, they couldn't have fathomed that. And so they began to, to cry out to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And, and we read in Luke 23, 23, but they, that is the people, were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevail. In other words, the people's voices overwhelmed. They, they silenced Pilate. And so Pilate decided to give them what they were demanding. And so he crucified Christ. But when Jesus builds his church, there are those who are seeking to prevail against it. There are those who are yelling, destroy the church, destroy the church. Much like the people were yelling out to crucify. And so Jesus says to this, this tiny little band of disciples in Matthew 16. He says that not only does he intend to build his church. But he intends to defend his church. His, his people whom he is building together. And he intends to do so in such a way that even the gates of hell themselves cannot prevail against it. Amen? Amen. It's not long, though, after Jesus spoke these words, 
that actually you see sort of the, the manifestation of these things coming about. All you have to do is turn to the book of Acts. In, in Acts chapter 2, you see Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost, and he begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do? He builds his church. We see thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as the disciples were meeting, as, as they were di discipling those new believers, what was happening? It says daily there were those who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And you see the church being built up. But no sooner do you see that happening than in Acts chapter 4, you see uh, Peter and John being uh, persecuted uh, by the, the Sanhedrin for, for following Jesus Christ. And, and they go away obviously rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And then in Acts chapter 6, you see the church continuing to grow even more. So much so that the apostles said, you know, we can't continue to minister the word and to pray and to take care of all the needs that are here. So let's set aside men as, as deacons to care for the, 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 the people. And one of those men that they set aside was Stephen, who was not only a deacon, but also an evangelist. And he goes and he preaches the gospel. He offends some people. And they end up stoning him in Acts chapter 7. And we read at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 that a persecution broke out all throughout the city. Everybody left except the apostles. And God used that as a massive way to begin the spread of the gospel and the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. And the point that I want us to see is, wherever you see Jesus building his church, there is opposition. And you can just see that. Just go through the book of Acts this afternoon if you want. And look, you'll see building opposition. Building opposition. As Satan seeks to come against the church. Wherever Jesus comes to build the church, he always builds the church within the context of opposition. Jesus always builds his church on enemy-occupied territory where the building program frequently encounters opposition from the gates of hell. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember that. You know, as we function as the church, as we do the things that Christ has called us to do, we must not be surprised when there is opposition. We must understand that he is building his church on enemy territory. And, and what Jesus has said to these band of disciples is just as important for us to 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 for us today in America. You know, it, it may not be easy to see this in America because we have experienced a, a fairly lengthy time of peace in regards to the church. But if you step back and you look at the world at large and the persecution and the opposition that comes against the church, you will discover that there are more martyrs for the faith in this century and the century we just finished than there is in all the rest of church history combined. And some of us, uh, to know this opposition, all we have to do is go to work or go to school or, or be out in our neighborhoods to realize that what Jesus says is true. For, for some of us, we may be fearful even to mention the name Jesus in a public context at, at work or wherever, I mean, people do it all the time, but it's usually as a swear word. But if you refer to Jesus in a loving way as your Savior, you uh, incur the possibility of the wrath of someone's persecution. 
because you are shoving your religion down their throat. So uh, we see that kind of persecution. Parents, grandparents, you probably see this with your kids. Uh, the struggle as, as Satan is, is seeking with his army to come against your kids and to influence them uh, through their, their peers or their school or, or whatever it may be through the, the TV uh, to, to forsake Christ and all that is hold dear with him. It is very evident that the world in which our kids are growing up is in enemy-occupied territory. Is that not true? So now, uh, so how much we need this promise of our Lord in the day and time in which we live. Even though the gates of hell will engage in aggression towards uh, Christ's church, they will never, ever, ever prevail. So that sort of raise, ask us, uh, causes us to raise some questions. One of which is, is Christ worth this to me? Is Christ worth me suffering for his namesake? We've not really had to do that much as a, as a country. Uh, also, is this fellowship, is this body of believers, to be part of this body, is this worth me suffering uh, for the sake of Christ? Well, I want us to look at three things as we think about this kind of opposition. Because, brothers and sisters, the reality is we live in a day and time in which this persecution is going to increase. So we need to understand the opposition that we are facing and what Jesus is telling us. And I want us to see that the first thing is that the opposition is spiritual. Okay, that it's spiritual. The conflict in which we are engaged is spiritual. And you might go, well, yeah, duh, I understand that. But, but, but do we grasp that? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, Jesus is speaking here about the powers of darkness, of Satan and his legions, as they are storming out of hell's gates in order to attack and destroy the church. And, and this is not something that's new. This is something that's been around since the beginning. If you look back at Genesis 3.15, clear back at the be beginning when in the garden with Adam and Eve, God is, is uh, speaking to the serpent and to Eve and to Adam after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin. And God says, I will put enmity between you, that is between the serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel he being the, the messiah the coming one the savior that would come and so we see in this text that there will be a great deliverer for god's people uh, that will come and bruise or crush the head of satan but until that deliverer comes there will be this, this conflict this aggression between God's people and, and Satan, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And what Jesus is saying here in Matthew is, is that it's, it's coming to a head. Now that Jesus has come, Satan's opposition is even greater. The opposition that the church is experiencing is not just merely political or cultural, but it is spiritual. Now, it is true that Satan... Um, can partner with humans to carry out his purpose. He, he uses them. It's, there's no question. You think about Pharaoh in the Old Testament and how he murdered Jewish children because he didn't want the Israelites to grow. What a horrible, evil act. 
And uh, we even see that same thing in our country today with abortion. Or what about Hitler, who was merciless towards the Jewish race? And so we, we see that evil, but the evil, humanly speaking, that is opposing the church is nothing compared to Satan. He is true evil that is coming against God and his people. The true battle is spiritual. And the church's deliverance is not won, brothers and sisters, in, in the polls in, in November as we come to vote. We can't look to November as being our salvation. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. Please vote. That is your responsibility. That is your privilege as a citizen of the United States, and you must do so. But that's not where our deliverer comes from because the battle that we have is with Satan. It is a spiritual battle. And so the conflict with Satan and his church is one on our knees. Do you believe that? Since the gates of hell knows that it cannot destroy Christ, God, or God's Christ, he will seek to destroy that which is most precious to God, and that is his bride, the church. And so, brothers and sisters, it is of vital importance for us that we understand in our Christian living and, and in Christ building his church that we are engaged in ultimately what is a spiritual work. That means it is a work that can only be done by spiritual instruments. We cannot engage in the building of Christ's church with the instruments of the world that's offered to us. Now let me just stop and pause there a second because I think that many of us know this, right, brothers and sisters? If I ask you this, you would tell me this. But it is so easy for us to fall into using the weapons and the instruments of the world to try to further the church. And I, I must confess, even myself, as I think about, you know, how can we reach Andover? How can we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with Andover? You know, sometimes my mind goes to some things like, you know, we need to have a good church website. Because if people can't find us, and we don't have a good church website, they're not going to come. And it has to be attractive. Or maybe we have to have the right programs for people to come. That's what's going to help the church grow. But brothers and sisters, this is a spiritual battle. And it is so important that we remember that. And we not fall into that trap. So many churches are falling into the trap of seeking to use the instruments of the world. It's a very significant thing that at the end of, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which he's writing to these Ephesians and talking about the building up of the church, is he not? If you look at it, and, and, he's, uh, and at the end of that letter, he addresses the reality that we are not simply wrestling against flesh and blood, but against what? The principalities, against the powers, against the forces of wickedness in spiritual places, and therefore the weapons that you need to use are spiritual. And if you look at the end of Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17, you see that he talks about the application of the gospel. You need to understand the gospel. You need to understand what you have received in Jesus Christ and stand firm in that. So as Satan attacks you, you can stand firm. And having done all to do what? Stand firm. But then he goes on in verses 18 through 20 and he talks about the necessity of prayer. And, and Paul says, you need prevailing prayer. As a matter of fact, Paul says, Pray that I might be bold in proclaiming the gospel as I ought to speak. So the gospel and prayer are particularly important in the church building program of our Lord. I mean, look, look at what Paul says. If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians 6, 19. He, 
Paul, as I said, has, has asked for, for prayer. And he says, also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Brothers and sisters, Paul was a trained Pharisee. He knew the scriptures. He had been traveling and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had seen churches planted. He had seen churches grow. And yet he still feels the need to say to these brothers and sisters, pray for me. Pray that I will have the right words to speak. Pray for me that I will be bold and I won't be timid in the face of opposition. And likewise, we have to be the same to say, Lord, as you use me to build the church, Lord, give me boldness that I may speak of you and what you, are, what you have done in sending your son. Uh, I love what Robert Murray McShane said. He said, it's not many words that God needs to bless. Just a few words spoken in faith will do. And that's what we need, to just speak the truth of the gospel and faith, that God will work through that to accomplish His purposes. So we must realize that the conflict in which we are engaged is, first of all, a spiritual one. And so we must resort to using spiritual tools like prayer, the fellowship, that mutual edification as we've been looking at in the book of Hebrews, the ministry of the Word, personal and corporate witness, those things. But the second thing that we see is that this opposition is doomed to fail. Uh, the opposition that stands against us is doomed to fail. We, we've already looked at this in, briefly, but he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, there's oftentimes two mistakes when it comes to thinking about spiritual conflict. One is to ignore the powers of darkness and act as if they don't exist. And if, if there's probably any temptation that we have in America, that's the one that we have, to think that it doesn't exist. But if you look at the things that are going on in the world today, what explanation can you have than the onslaught of the powers of darkness that are occurring? To see that there is genocide going on around the world. There is starvation. There, there's persecution. Do you, do you think that these things that are going on and the world today can be explained only in terms of bad people? No. So we must not be blind to the reality of spiritual opposition to the building of Christ's kingdom. But the other extreme is, is that we might be too obsessed with the power of Satan and we forget that he is doomed to fail. And, and this is what Jesus is saying, that the gates of hell that will storm the gates of the kingdom, the church that he's building, will never be able to overcome it. And there's several reasons for that. Number one, and I want us to remember this. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. 1 John 3, verse 8. Jesus, we see, has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. He said, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 14, we, we saw, as we've been studying the book of Hebrews recently, how Jesus took on our nature in order to experience all that we have experienced. 
He is fully God and He became fully man as well. But to deliver us from the one who holds us captive because of our long life uh, fear of death. And now He is risen. Amen? And He reigns. And the enemy has been defeated. And so you can go into the enemy territory. We can go into the enemy territory, occupied territory, and stake a claim of every inch of this world and raise high the name of Jesus. And this is the only explanation as to what we see in the life of the disciples. You think about the disciples before Christ's death and His resurrection. They were just sort of this cowering little group of, of men, were they not? I mean, even after Christ's death, before they knew that He was risen, they were cowering in a room, just terrified that they would be arrested. And then we look in the book of Acts, and they were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ has been raised and He sits at the right hand of the Father. And even though they face that continual opposition, they no longer are cowering. Do you believe, brothers and sisters, that there is something supernatural happening in this world? Do you believe that Jesus has conquered death and He's risen and triumphed over the powers of darkness? And He's already begun to press forward the boundaries of His kingdom? Do you believe that? Sometimes it's hard for us in our country uh, to, to really grasp that because the church in America seems to be sore oppressed. See, the church seems almost to be marginalized. Many churches are declining in numbers. People, uh, even after COVID, uh, have decided that you know they're not going to return to church. I hear pastors say all the time, we've got a third of our people who haven't even come back to church after COVID. And, you know, I understand sometimes that's due to health reasons and stuff, but sometimes they just haven't returned. But, but if you look at the world in which we live, and you look in China, you look in Korea, you look in Africa, you look in South America, you will see how Christ is expanding His church. And it is growing even in the midst of persecution and uh, to His glory and praise. And if you could only see what's happening around the world from Christ's perspective and, and how He's building His church, I think we would be astonished. And, and brothers and sisters, I think that's also one reason why we have more martyrs in, in this day and time than ever before. Because the powers of darkness cannot withstand the spiritual aggression of the power of the gospel. Do you hear that? That, you know, we think of Satan as the one who is the aggressor, but Satan can do nothing to hold back the kingdom of God, and Christ is expanding His church. Oh, for us to have uh, some sense of this in our hearts, that whatever suffering that we may go through, whatever we may experience on behalf of the gospel, um, it is because Christ is building His church in me and through me and with me. And together with all the fellow believers. And nothing, brothers and sisters, will stop Jesus Christ from building His church and defending her. And so our opposition is spiritual. Uh, but, it's, but it also, our opposition is doomed to fail. But we need to also understand that our opposition is ongoing. In other words, it's something that we're going to continually feel and face. Jesus doesn't say... I will once for all build my church and the gates of hell will be destroyed. He says, I will keep on building my church and the gates of hell will keep on seeking to destroy it 
but they will never overcome it. And so, uh, as, as we continue to minister in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must keep that in mind. That for us, we're, we're living more like in the days of D-Day. If you, if you remember D-Day with World War II, uh, when the Allied forces invaded Normandy, France, and they gained that foothold in Europe, that was the turning point for World War II. Uh, that was known as D-Day. Uh, but then there became V-Day, when the actual victory had been realized. And where we live as Christians right now is we live in D-Day. Uh, the D-Day of God's action where Christ died on the cross and His resurrection and He's raised in heaven and He's building His church and He's conquering. But we're not quite to that V-Day yet when Christ will return and the war will be over. And, and just like with World War II, even after D-Day, there were still bloody battles. As a matter of fact, some of the bloodiest battles of World War II were fought between 1944 and 1945 after D-Day. And so today, some of the bloodiest spiritual battles are being fought today. And just because Christ is the ultimate victor doesn't mean that the church can sit back on its haunches. We are in the onslaught of the battle, whether we acknowledge it or not. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, Satan is angry. He knows that his time is short, and so his strategy against the church is, is never haphazard. He's always very intentional in coming against the church. It's interesting, we've, we've read a lot this morning that, you know, that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You ever stop and think about, what do you, why does he say the gates? You know, well, if you think about it from an Old Testament perspective, what happened in the gates of the city? Is that not where the elders and the leaders of that city would congregate? They would, they would make counsel together. They would make plans. They would pass out judgments. They would hear cases from the people, and they would decide those things. That was sort of the position of power and authority of that city was at the gates. And, and he's saying here that the gates of hell is referring to the strategic aggression of the powers of darkness against the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. You ever wonder how Christ views our church, our, our group of people here, with his ability to, to see in our hearts and to know our motives and our thoughts, as he, as he sees into our lives as individuals, as, as households, as a local fellowship, uh, he sees what you're going through, he sees what I'm going through, he sees what the person sitting beside you is going through. Uh, and, and the pressures that you're facing. And sometimes we can't make sense of those things. And we wonder, Lord, what is going on? And I'm just, it just feels like I'm struggling. And some may be struggling here uh, very much. And no one in this body really know that. But Jesus sees it all. And he looks down upon his people and he sees the difficulty you face and the problems you experience and the trials you go through. And, and they may not be simply isolated experiences. They may well be part of a great strategy of the powers of darkness to seek to do something evil to us as a fellowship of God's people. You ever thought about that? Because, brothers and sisters, we are bound together. I mean, what did Paul say? If one member suffers in the body of Christ, who suffers? We all suffer. We, we are connected. So what takes place in your life as... As Satan, Satan seeks to tempt you, as Satan seeks to, to draw you away from Christ, 
as Satan seeks to bring into your life a, maybe a thorn in the flesh like what, what Paul had, this is not necessarily just an individual experience because you and I are members of the same body. It may be that this is part of Satan's aggression, not just against you, not just against your family, but against what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing at Kirk of the Plains. We're not disconnected, brothers and sisters. We are connected. We are to love one another. We are to pray for one another. We are to care for one another and to stand with one another no matter what happens. And we'll do so because the Lord Jesus has given us this promise. Remember, brothers, that when you are assaulted by a wave of darkness, Jesus is building His church and the gates of hell are seeking to destroy it. Now, how, how does He seek to destroy to destroy us. Well, we have a, a prime example here. It's interesting. In, uh, I've read a little bit farther in our passage because I wanted us to see that Jesus is teaching his disciples that in order for the kingdom of God to come, that he must suffer and die upon the cross and to be raised from the dead. And as he does, what does Peter do? Peter, who just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, takes Jesus aside in verse 22, and then in verse 23, he uh, he says against uh, he says, uh, but he turned and said to Peter, or Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him, and Jesus uh, he turned and said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan!" You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter was upset. Why? Because the only way salvation would come would be through a crucified Savior. And that didn't make sense in his mind. But when Satan attacks against the church, the one thing that you can be certain is, is that he will always seek to draw us away from Jesus Christ. And particularly away from Jesus Christ crucified. And likewise, Satan will seek to draw us away from the Christian life in which it bears the cross. If you notice, I didn't read this section, but in 24 through the end of the chapter, Jesus talks to his disciples about uh, the idea of taking up your cross and following Christ. That's what he calls us to as the church, is, is to take up our cross. Jesus builds the church on the foundation of his own cross and he shapes the cross, uh, shapes the church to, to bear that cross in our day-to-day -day lives. As long as God's grace, as long as by God's grace we stay near to a crucified Christ and bear upon our shoulders uh, that suffering of Christ, he will work through his church to build his church. Let's pray.
we thank you so much for your word that was spoken this morning. I pray that you would help us to, to, to take to heart the things that you have uh, spoken to us as your church. That even in the face of, of opposition, this is not something for us to be fearful about, to, to worry about. But we are, Lord, to battle, to be involved in the battle. And in a way, God, in which we use the spiritual weapons that you have given to us. And so I pray that you would encourage us this day, Lord, as we encounter uh, the attacks of Satan. Lord, as the world is coming against us, as we hear voices that say, destroy the church, destroy the church. And that may be coming through a whole myriad of different ways. It could even be those who are seeking to shut down churches so they can't meet to worship, whatever it may be. But Lord, let us not lose heart. As a matter of fact, God, I pray that you would embolden us today to be part of that battle. Father, to, to pray, to, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, for your church that you would wake her up to the reality of what it is that you are doing. And Lord, cause us as your people to join you and to be used as your instruments, Lord, to bring about your purposes for uh, furthering the church of Jesus Christ. Oh God, forgive us for our sin of laziness and apathy. Uh, Lord, for relying upon worldly instruments rather than God giving ourselves over to those things that from a human perspective may not seem very effective or make much sense but Lord are the powerhouse of the things that, that you have given to your people. We just thank you, Lord Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Amen.